What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. Today is unusual for me. I did not have any plans to talk about the Delphi murders. Number one, because it happened in Indiana and nowhere near Canada. And two, because it's not a closed case and it just seems like the entire true crime world is all abuzz about it. So what the heck could I possibly offer to it? But I was surprised to learn that most of the people that I know in my inner circle that are true crime fans have actually never heard of this case, which kind of boggles my mind. But then I remember that it is actually me that is the weirdo here. And anyways, I recently ordered one of my group of girlfriends that if one of them didn't read or listen up on this case um, so that I could have somebody to talk to about it with, I would lose my ever-loving mind. And so they did because I'm bossy. But then one of them said, there's just so much going on here. Can you just do an episode so that we can get it all straight? So kind of by special request, let's talk about the murders of Libby German and Abby Williams, otherwise known as the Delphi murders. Now, if you are sick to death of this case and know it already, Feel free to wait till Monday in my regular episode. I'm not offended. I completely get it. And I realize there's a ton of information going on about this case currently. It is all over YouTube and podcasts and the mainstream news. But here's what I found out lately about the coverage. It is either so full in depth that you might as well be sitting in a courtroom listening to hours and hours of legal arguments that aren't even at the point of the trial yet, uh, which is right up my alley, but not most people's. Or there's so much speculation and craziness that it makes my ears and heart hurt. Or you're listening to older versions of the podcast telling the story as it was a few years ago. So let me put it all into some perspective for you today, uh, which tomorrow could look totally different. Which is why this episode is an extra in your feed and not my regular cut and dried, this is how the case went down kind of coverage. So this case has become such a mess, and I feel so terrible for Libby and Abby's families for what's happened to them, not just with the horrible murders of their little girls, which let's face it, they were children, but with the circus that has taken over recently, and not the least of which true crime content creators like myself have probably contributed to it. So that's another part of why I've really been reluctant to talk about this case in an episode. I do not want to add any further pain to these families. I don't want to sit as a critic of the police in Indiana or the FBI by giving opinions publicly about things that I don't have any expertise in. 
but we are going to do it because it's been really weighing heavily on my mind these days. A disclaimer, I am not a legal expert. I don't live in Indiana and I don't want to add any drama into an already very inflamed situation. So I'm just going to stick to the facts and give you a gentle reminder that behind this story is two young girls whose lives were cut short and two families that are grieving and just don't need any more added pain. So let's tread very lightly and kindly with this case with what I do know to be the actual facts so far. First, I'm going to give you a good rundown of what happened and when and what so we know that that we know right now is concrete facts. And then I'll tell you what happened in October of 2022 and what's kind of been going on lately in the last few months. And I'm going to try and break it down super factual and let you speculate on your own if you wish about what's what. Delphi, Indiana is a very small town of just under 3,000 people in Carroll County, a one gas station kind of town and home to 14-year-old Liberty German and 13-year-old Abigail Williams. Liberty German was living with her grandparents, Becky and Mike Patty. Um, now, don't picture the suburbs. It's more of a rural community. So Libby's house was, it's got a very long driveway and it has a large, probably good couple of acres. The scene and getting a feel for the places in this story is really important. So um, because this is a podcast, you kind of have to picture it in your mind. And the reason that Libby is living with her grandparents is that her mom and dad had both of them at one time had gotten involved in drugs. Now, living in the home at the time is Mike, Becky, Libby, her sister, Kelsey, and her dad, Derek. And so Mike and Becky are Libby's paternal grandparents. And it's also important to note that despite some of the issues, uh, Libby and Kelsey had a really good relationship with their mom, Carrie Tibbins, and talked to her on the phone quite often and also had a good relationship with her dad, Derek. Uh, she had been born December 27th, 2002, and was described by Mike and Becky as outgoing, flamboyant, wanted to try and do anything and everything that there was to do. She was very social. She was on the volleyball team. She just had a lot of friends. Abby Williams was born June 23rd, 2003 to her mom, Anna, in Sault Ste. Marie, but Anna and Abby had moved to Delphi shortly after she was born to live with her grandma. She was an only child and a bit more reserved and definitely quieter than Libby, and she wasn't really like a girly girl. Abby and Libby were best friends. Like They went everywhere together, and hopefully we all remember very fondly our best friend from when you were about 13 or 14 your ride or die person. And that was Libby and Abby. They were also in the school band together. They both played saxophone and they were on that volleyball team together. On the weekend of February 12th, 2017, which was a Saturday, um, it was unusually warm that weekend for that time of year. And Indiana has snow days, which they kind of plan ahead for bad weather and anticipate, you know, say, X number of days in the school year where the school will probably have to be closed due to a blizzard or something. And if they don't use those days for actual bad weather, then they schedule them. So it was warm, but it was also a snow day that Monday. So an extra long weekend. So that Sunday night, the girls had a sleepover at Libby's house. Now sleepovers are the best. And me and my ride or die girl had them every weekend we possibly could. They did some painting, listened to music, probably made a few Snapchat stories. Just good times doing really normal girl stuff. And of course, being teens and after a sleepover on the Monday, they slept in till about 10. And around noon, Libby's big sister, Kelsey, came into the kitchen, said she's heading out to work. Well, when Libby heard that, she jumped up and asked if she, if she would take her and Abby down to the walking trails. Said, well, you have to get your own ride home. And she said, that's fine. I'll call dad. Um, so they left. 
Now, again, I have to set the scene because I think that the scene in the story is very important. In Delphi, they have hiking and walking trails along Deer Creek. It's wooded in forestry, but with trails and people go there. Now, it's not like here at Fish Creek Park where on a Tuesday at two in the afternoon, I could take a 20 minute walk and see eight or nine people in that time. It's a town of only about 3000 people and it's not a tourist destination but you would probably pass one or maybe two people on the trails, you know, someone walking their dog or whatever. But the very interesting thing about these trails is that there are a couple of bridges that you can cross when you're walking. So Kelsey dropped Libby and Abby off at 1.38 at the entrance of the trails that led to either the Freedom Bridge, which would have been the newer, bigger bridge, the one that most people take, or the Monon High Bridge, which has probably become one of the most famous bridges in the U.S. by now. It's a historic bridge, a train bridge with wooden slats. There's no guardrails and 80 feet up in the air with missing and broken loose wood planks. The stuff of my nightmares. Um, But super cool for two teen girls who like to take cool pictures on their phones, which is exactly what they had planned to do. And to set the scene a bit further, I'm just going to read this part from a probable cause affidavit that was released later about the bridge. At the time, the Monon High Bridge Trail was approximately one mile gravel trail terminating at the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge is an abandoned railroad trestle approximately 0.25 miles long, spanning the Deer Creek and Deer Creek Valley on the southeast end of the trail. Approximately 0.7 miles northwest of the trail from the northern, northwestern edge of the Monon High Bridge is the Freedom Bridge which is a pedestrian bridge spanning State Road 25. Approximately 300 feet west of Freedom Bridge was a former railroad overpass over Old State Road 25, also known as County Road 300 North. The uh, trail terminates just west of the former railroad overpass. The majority of the trail is a wooded area with a steep embankment on the south side of the trail. And so they were dropped off across from the Mears farm, which is at sort of the entrance to the walking trails. At 2.07 p.m., they had reached the Monon High Bridge, and Libby took a Snapchat photo of the bridge. And she actually took two photos. One was just the bridge itself. Likely, She likely got down low on the ground and took it from an angle where you can see sort of the end of the bridge just kind of disappears into the woods on the other end. And the other photo she took of Abby walking toward that. It's a boat just past the halfway point of the bridge. She's looking down, which you have to do in order to cross this bridge safely, with her hands in her pockets. It's important to note in this photo, there is no other person on the bridge with them at this time. And once you cross the Monon High Bridge from those walking trails, there's really nowhere to go. It's private property and there's really nothing to see. So they would have then had to turn around and walk back over the bridge at that point. And they had planned on meeting on Derek coming to pick them up at three. So by the time they walked back over the bridge and got back to the entrance of the trails, it would have been about three. So when they turned around to go back over the bridge, there's a man in jeans and a sort of blue canvas type jacket walking the bridge towards them. Libby, obviously sensing something was amiss, recorded this very short clip of this guy walking towards them. Now, this recording wasn't released until a bit later, um, but we know about it now, so I can add it into the timeline. According to legal records, she likely put the phone into her pocket and tried to continue recording, but it's very muffled, and then it just shuts off shortly after that. 
The cops aren't releasing any more of it, but the affidavit that I'm reading from says that one of the girls in this recording mentioned the word gun. And this was at 2.13. And at 2.07, there was photographic proof that there was no one on this bridge with them. Like, you can't hide on this bridge. It's wide open. And by 2.13, he was close enough to be recorded walking towards them and just a little over the halfway point of the bridge at that time. So this guy would have been hoofing it across this bridge to reach them at that in that time frame, which is not an easy task given the state of this bridge. Okay, so now I'm going to read you this part from the probable cause affidavit. A video from victim two. Now, victim two is known to be Libby. Her phone shows that at 2.13 p.m., victim one and victim two encountered a male subject on the southeast portion of the Moden High Bridge. The male ordered the girls, guys, down the hill. No witnesses saw them after this time. No outgoing communications were found in victim two's phone after this time. The video recovered from victim two's phone shows victim one walking southeast on the Monon High Bridge, while a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. As the male subject approaches victim one and two, one of the victims mentions gun. Near the end of the video, a male is seen and heard telling the girls, guys, down the hill. The girls then begin to proceed down the hill and the video ends. A still photograph taken from the video and the guys down the hill audio was subsequently released to the public to assist investigators in identifying the male. So here is the recording that was released of the guy's voice. Now, the first one is the initial part that was released, and then the other one adds the word guys to it. Libby is my hero, and this recording and this little snippet is probably the closest to knowing what happened and who did it that we may ever get to. At 3.11, Derek called Libby's phone to tell him that he's getting close and to make sure that they're waiting where he's going to pick, where he wanted to pick them up, but Libby didn't answer. So when he got there, he parked and called again, left a message, hey, where are you? I'm here. And again, she didn't answer. So at 3.30, he hadn't heard from her, so he called Becky and asked her to try calling, and they both were getting really worried at this point because, like most 14-year-old girls, her phone was her lifeline. It's, like, permanently attached to her, and she answers it. So Derek walked around a little bit, asked a couple of people on the trails if they had seen seen her, and very quickly, Becky, Mike, Kelsey, and Abby's mom, Anna, were all alerted that Debbie, Derek couldn't find them. So they all came out to start walking the trails and calling for them. And by 5.30, without finding them, they call the police. And by this time, other friends and family, remember, this is a very small town. So before the police were even called, there are people looking for these girls. Now, Abby didn't have her, she didn't have a cell phone, but Libby's goes dead right around the same time. So they can't use it to try and track her. And no one knew until later that they had crossed the, the Monon High Bridge. Um, now, I saw an interview with Anna, Abby's mom, where she said that if she didn't know that they were going to the bridge and that she would have been mad at them for doing so because it's dangerous. Dangerous that you could fall, not because somebody's going to murder you. 
So they were searching the area, but might have ignored the other side of the Monon High Bridge, thinking that they wouldn't have crossed it. And at this time, they're not even thinking dead. They're thinking injury or lost, not dead. So by midnight, it's too dark. It's too dangerous to keep looking and they have to call off the search. But again, there's no thought about foul play. They figure one of them is maybe hurt and the other one is staying with her and they're going to stay put until someone comes to help them. And thankfully, it's warm enough out so they're not going to freeze overnight. I will be right back after these brief messages. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. By first light the next morning, February 14th, 2017, the search resumes, and by now, it is full on. There are canine units, dive teams, and the FBI has gotten involved to search for them as well. Around noon, Kelsey hears someone yell something like they found them, um, but their voice and the shouts, she just knew that it wasn't good. Becky's sister ran to Becky, repeating, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, just as the coroner's van drove past her. And Anna had been waiting at the fire station with a warm jacket for the girls when the pastor took her aside and told her that they'd found the girls and it wasn't a good outcome. There are some really heartbreaking interviews out there with Anna and Becky, and I think that you should watch them to get a good understanding of what these girls meant to them and what has been lost in this really this now mess of a case. Very, very, very little information was given out at the time or even for the first few years um, so what I'm telling you is now stuff that has been revealed somewhat recently. Obviously, right away, they knew this was a homicide, but they didn't release any details, like not even about where they had been found specifically. But we now know that they were found east of the Monon High Bridge on the other side of Deer Creek in um, what I would describe as a lightly wooded area. So from the point where they exited the end of the bridge and were told to go down the hill, they would have had to walk down a rather steep embankment and then actually cross the creek to get into the bank to get to the bank on the other side where they were eventually found. Libby and Abby were ride or die, so one wouldn't have left the other, and there was there was mention of a gun. So anyone who wonders why they wouldn't have made a break for it, I think it's because they're 14 and they're scared of their minds. Um, so here is a little bit of the first pre- press conference from February 22nd, 2017. After organized searches on February 14th, one of those search parties unfortunately found the bodies of the two teens. Evidence in this case has led investigators to believe this is a double homicide, and that's what we're investigating at this time. Also shown uh, in front of me is an enlarged depiction of a person believed to be the suspect in this case. We are actively looking for this person. We believe this person is our suspect, and we would like any information 
regardless of how small or minute you might believe that information to be, it might be the one piece of a very large puzzle that helps us get this person in custody. So please call our tip line, 844-459-5786. Words tend to escape during these periods of times, and I've only had a couple of other situations in my lifetime. <clears throat> I'm able to stand before you and say that. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Why Carroll County? Why the region? Why the state? Why even them in the nation? I say that because this is a classic example and a clear example that evil lives amongst us. To the family, to the community, the region, the state, as a leader of the Indiana State Police, I say I am so very sorry. Each and every person listening, watching, or seeing this in some form, we need you. Libby and Abby need you. Please do not rationalize tips away. Rationalize what you think that might not be important away. By thinking he would never do that to another human being. Or think, what I know doesn't matter. Let folks like the people that are standing behind me with such incredible passion and commitment and dedication to this profession make that determination. We do have some new information for you today. Uh, it's in the form of a, an audio file uh, from the cell phone that Liberty German had with her at the time. We're not going to play everything that we have, uh, but Liberty had the presence of mind uh, to turn on her video camera. Uh, again, we're not going to be able to share everything with you, but we are going to share this audio clip with you momentarily with the hope that somebody will recognize this voice. And I want to be very clear that what you're about to hear is just four short words excuse me, three words, down the hill. You're going to hear this played four times. The audio quality is not superb, but there's enough there that somebody could recognize this person's voice. And as Superintendent Carter said, not to rationalize away. If you hear this today and you think, my God, that sounds like fill in the blank, call us, make an anonymous tip. Tell us who you think it is. Let us investigate it. If it's not the right person, they'll just be out a little bit of time and they'll be cleared and they can go on and they'll never know that you called. But you may tell us who the right person was and you could be the person that helps us to solve this horrible crime. Micah, play the clip, please. <laughs> As I indicated before, the, the reason we believe this is a suspect is based on the totality of the evidence that we've gathered thus far. That has led us to believe this is the person that at least participated 
in the murders are Liberty German and Abigail Williams. So a still photo of the man on the bridge was released, and it doesn't show his face, and that was released on February 15, 2017. On July 17th, they released a sketch of what they believe his face looked like. Um, what we later learn is that there were witnesses that saw this guy on the trails that day, but that no one really got a good look at his face. So this sketch was kind of useless, really, in my opinion. Uh, it's a white guy, prominent nose, goatee, who's wearing a cap, what appears to be a hooded sweatshirt, looks around mid-40s maybe. And the police say the suspect had reddish-brown hair, stands between five foot six and five foot ten, and weighs between 180 and 220 pounds. But then on April 2019, they release another sketch. This one doesn't look anything like the first one and shows a much younger person now calling this one a more accurate representation. This guy isn't wearing a cap and looks like a teenager. But again, now that we know some stuff, I'm not going to go into what was released about that and what tips came in as a result of it. Basically, the case went cold and everybody had a theory. Lots of people's pictures were plastered all over the internet as this looks like it could be Bridge Guy. And the owner of the property that they were found on was a suspect for quite a while. He has since passed away. Um, more just stuff that no one really should have been talking about and speculating on. Um, but I will tell you what the witnesses actually did see. And again, this is all from this probable cause affidavit. Um, interviews were conducted with three juveniles. They advised that they were on the Monon High Bridge Trail on February 13, 2017. They advised that they were working, walking on the trail toward Freedom Bridge to go home when they encountered a male walking from Freedom Bridge toward the Monon High Bridge. Uh, one of them described the male as kind of creepy and advised that he was wearing like blue jeans, a really light blue jacket, and his hair was gray, maybe a little brown, and he didn't really show his face. And she advised that the jacket was a duck canvas type jacket and said that he, she had said hi to the guy, but he just glared at them. She recalled him being in all black and had something covering his mouth. She described him as not very tall with a high, bigger build. She said he was bigger than five foot ten, adding that he was wearing a black hoodie, black jeans and black boots. She stated that he had his hands in his pockets. Where she showed the investigators a photograph that she had taken while she was on the trails that day. The photographs included a photo of the Monon High Bridge taken at 12.43 and then another one taken at 1.26 of the bench that's just east of the Freedom Bridge. She advised after she took the photo of the bench, they started walking back toward the Freedom Bridge and she advised that when they encountered the man who matched this description of the photograph taken from Victim 2's video, described the man she encountered on the trail as wearing a blue or black windbreaker jacket and she advised that the jacket had a collar had his hood up from the clothing underneath his jacket and she advised he was wearing baggy jeans and was taller than him her head came up to approximately his shoulders um, the other one said that she had said hi to the man and that he had said nothing back she stated he was walking with a purpose like he knew where he was going she stated he had his hands in his pockets and kept his head down. She advised she did not get a look, good look at his face, but believed him to be a white male. The girls advised after encountering the male, they continued their walk across Freedom Bridge and the old railroad bridge over Old State 25. And then another witness said that 
um, she was on the trails that same day. The video from Hoosier's Harvest Store captured a vehicle traveling eastbound at 1.46 p.m. towards the entrance of the, Mo of the Mears Farm. Now, that would probably be Kelsey. Um, she saw four juvenile females walking on the bridge over Old Slate Road 25 as she was driving underneath her driving underneath it on her way to work advised that there was no other cars parked across from the Mears farm when she, uh, where she parked. She advised that she walked to the Monon high bridge and observed a male matching the one from victim two's video. She described the male she saw as a white male wearing blue jeans and a blue jean jacket. And she advised he was standing on the first platform of the Monon high bridge, approximately 50 feet from her. She advised that she turned around at the bridge and continued her walk. She advised approximately halfway between the bridge and the parking areas across from the Mears farm. She passed two girls walking towards Moan and High Bridge. She advised she believed the girls were victim one and victim two. Uh, and video from the Hoosier Harvest Store shows at 1.49 p.m. a white car matching vehicle traveling away from the entrance across from the Mears farm. She finished her walk and so on no other adults other than the male on the bridge. And her vehicle is seen on the Hoosier Harvester video at 2.14 p.m. leaving westbound from the trails. Um, now there was a last witness. This was a man. He says that he observed a purple PT cruiser or small SUV type vehicle parked on the south side of the old CPS vehicle or at CPS building. Now this is at 2.10 p.m. Uh, it appeared as though it was backed up to conceal the license plate of the vehicle. He remembered seeing a smaller, dark-colored car at the CPS building. He described it as possibly being like a smart car. Um, and it is seen leaving at 2.28 p.m. on the Hoosier Harvester Store visit video. And there is another witness as well. She was traveling east on 300 North on February 13th, observed a male subject walking west on the north side of 300 North away from the Monon High Bridge advised that the male subject was wearing a blue colored jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared he had gotten in a fight. Investigators were able to determine from watching the video from the Hoosier Harvester Harvest Store that it's redacted there was traveling on CR North CR 300 North of at approximately 3:57 p.m. Uh, so then here's a press, a little bit of the press conference from 2018 on the one year anniversary of the murders. And I just hope that one day I can look into the eyes of a murderer and ask him why. And I believe that we will. I, I believe that I believe that we will. We've got to perpetuate the relationship that we have. And we've got to not stop. Ladies and gentlemen, I've seen detectives that have given their lives to this case that have held off and discussed holding off, holding off retirement, that have canceled family vacations, that work nights, weekends, and holidays so that we can explain to you one day and to this incredible community and to our state what happened. The, I, I don't think there's multiple pieces to the puzzle, ladies and gentlemen. I think there's one piece, and it's having one individual with the strength to say, that was my brother, or that's my dad, or that's my cousin, or that's my neighbor, it's my coworker. That's all we need. And I think we're one piece away. One piece. Now, while this case was cold, there was some interesting developments, but no arrest in the murders. So I'm just going to quickly tell you a little bit about Keegan Klein. 
He is not suspected of being involved in the murders, but he's a complete skis ball, so I'm going to mention him. In 2021, he was found to have been communicating with Libby German right up until she died under this online persona using a male model as Anthony Schatz, pretending to be another teen and catfishing girls all over the place, sometimes also pretending to be a girl named Emily Ann. He looked very good for the murder, but he's probably about 400 pounds, so he doesn't match the description of Bridge Guy at all. And he wound up pleading guilty to 25 charges of child exploitation, child solicitation, possession of child pornography, identity theft, and obstructive of justice, and got 40 years. And despite his guilty plea, he blames it all on his dad for framing him. Uh, he was never seriously considered a suspect in the murders, but it was definitely a good catch in this investigation that it just kind of so happened that he was able to be found and caught. Okay, so let's just cut to the chase now. It turns out that some notes from a police interview done back in 2017 were kind of misplaced for some time. And when they were found and read with fresh eyes, it got people looking in a certain direction. And well, this happened. Last Friday, October 28, 2022. At that time, we had gathered evidence to formulate a PC that we submitted to the court and the judge did find probable cause for an arrest of Richard Allen. He's been charged with two counts of murder for the murder of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. This investigation is still very ongoing. We're keeping the tip line open, the tip email open. We encourage everybody to continue to call in tips, not only about Richard Allen, but about any other person that you may have. For that reason and for the nature of this case, the probable cause and the charging information has been sealed by the court. I've been very clear to everybody that per the court order, we cannot talk about the evidence that's in the probable cause or the evidence that's in the charging information. That will become evident to you at some point and it'll be released, but right now is not that day. Today's about Abby and Libby, focusing on them. Richard Allen, who, guilty or innocent, life is now ruined over being tied to this very notorious case as the person identified as Bridge Guy and the only person arrested in the murders of Libby German and Abigail Williams, is a 50-year-old pharmacy assistant at the CVS drugstore, married to Kathy and the father to two daughters, about Libby and Abby's age. So how how did this guy come to be known as Bridge Guy and the girl's possible innocent-until-proven-guilty killer? Well, this probable cause affidavit has now been unsealed, so I can tell you. The original notes of his interview say that he was at the trails between 1.30 and 3.30 and parked at the old Farm Bureau building, which actually doesn't exist. He's talking about the old CPS building. He walked to the Freedom Bridge, and while he was there, he saw three young girls and didn't see anyone else because he was looking at his stock ticker on his phone and looking down while he walked. He did own at the time two cars, a 2016 black Ford Focus and a 2006 gray Ford 500 truck. And now I'm going to read this from the affidavit. And this affidavit that I keep referring to just lays out what evidence that they had that made him a good enough suspect to arrest. Uh, They may have more evidence against him that they're saving for the trial, but this is just what they've laid out so far. On October 13th, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He advised that he was on the trails on February 13th, 2017. He stated he saw juvenile girls on the trails east of the Freedom Bridge and that he went on to the Monon High Bridge. 
Richard Allen further stated that he went out onto the Monon hybrid to watch the fish. Later in his statement, he said he walked to the first platform of the bridge. He stated he then walked back, sat on a bench on the trail, and then left. He stated he parked his car on the side of an old building. He told investigators that he was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. He advised that he may have been wearing some type of head covering as well. He further claimed that he saw no one else except for the juvenile girls um, that he saw east of the Freedom Bridge, and he told investigators that he owns firearms and they are at his home. Richard Allen's wife, Kathy Allen, also spoke with investigators. She confirmed that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. She also stated that Richard still owns the blue Carhartt jacket. So on October 13th, 2022, investigators executed a search warrant of his residence at 1960, whatever. Along with other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including a Sig Sawyer model P226 40 caliber pistol with serial number blah, blah, blah. Between October 14th, 2022 and October 19th, 2022, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on Allen's Sig Sawyer model P226. The laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm, function test, barrel, and overall length measurement, blah, blah, blah. The laboratory determined that the unspent round located within two feet of victim two's body had been cycled through Richard M. Allen Sig Sawyer Model P226. Investigators then ran the firearm and found that the firearm was purchased by Richard Allen in 2001. Richard Allen's voluntarily came to the Indiana State Police post on October 26, 2022. He spoke with investigators and stated that he had never allowed anyone to use or borrow the Sig Sawyer firearm and when asked about the unspent bullet that um, he did not have an explanation as to why the bullet was found between the bodies of victim one and victim two. He again admitted that he was on the trail, but denied knowing victim one or two and denied any involvement in their murders. So that's what they have on this guy, a spent bullet that was cycled through his gun, but not actually fired. That was found between the bodies of Libby and Abby that he matched the description of this bridge guy admitted to being at the scene at the time wearing and owning the same clothes as bridge guy and driving a car somewhat similar to what the witnesses saw. Uh, So I figured that I was just going to have to wait a year or so for this matter to go to trial and hope that it was televised so that I could watch it unfold and decide for myself his guilt or innocence. But the internet and the media, and as it turns out, the Office of Defense Attorneys are kind of strange places. And things went insane from there. Attorneys Brad Rosie and Andrew Baldwin were either appointed or hired, it doesn't matter, to defend him. And pretrial hearings are open to the public. So we started to get a pretty good idea of what direction the defense was going to be going in when this went to trial, which was supposed to be January 2024. But as you're going to see, that's not going to happen. It was actually the defense that wanted the probable cause affidavit unsealed, and that was granted, and the Reddit detectives went crazy over it. Now, rather than sitting in a remand jail because of the amount of discovery that the defense had to go over and that he was accused of a child killing, he was moved to a maximum security prison to be held awaiting his trial and put into protective custody. Now, the first move of the defense was to say that his physical health was deteriorating rapidly and that he was being treated like a prisoner of war, which is their words, not mine. 
um, and he had lost quite a bit of weight. So he was moved, which this is all pretty tame stuff so far, nothing too shocking, maybe a little bit dramatic, but whatever. Then on June 28th, 2023, the judge ordered about a hundred documents that had been filed so far unsealed. And again, the internet went completely crazy. Now, most of these documents are really a bunch of legal stuff, but they did have some interesting little tidbits in them. And mostly we learned that the prosecution had gotten their hands on some phone calls and the defense wanted them thrown out because Richard Allen was now insane. Quote, charges were filed against Richard M. Allen on October 28, 2022 for two counts of murder. Once Richard M. Allen was taken into custody, he was moved to the Westfield Correctional Facility, which is part of the Indiana Department of Corrections, for safekeeping. He has been in the facility since November 2022, entered the facility, was placed in segregation for his protection, blah, 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 blah. Uh, once Richard M. Allen's arrived at the facility, he was placed on suicide watch because of certain statements he had made about harming himself. His mental health improved to the point that he was taken off the suicide watch and was participating in recreation and beginning to exercise. To this day, his demeanor was that he was quiet, read a lot of books, did crossword puzzles and exercise daily. On April 3rd, 2023, Richard M. Allen made a phone call to his wife, Kathy Allen. In that phone call, Richard M. Allen admits several times that he killed Abby and Libby. Investigators had the phone call transcribed and the transcription confirms that Richard M. Allen admits that he committed the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. He admits several times within the phone call that he committed the offenses as charged. His wife, Kathy Allen, ends the phone call abruptly. Soon after, attorneys for Richard M. Allen filed an emergency motion to modify the safekeeping order. In that motion, the defense states that Richard M. Allen's mental state has dec declined because Westfield Correctional Facility is unfit and that he should be moved. Defense also makes allegations that his mental health has declined to the point where Richard M. Allen has been deprived of his constitutional right to assist in his defense in this case. Further, blah, 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 blah. Richard M. Allen was, was wetting down paperwork he had gotten from his attorneys and eating it. He was refusing to eat and refusing to sleep. He would go days on end refusing to sleep. He further broke the tablet that he had used for text messages and phone calls. He went from making up to two phone calls a day as of April 3rd, 2023, to not making any phone calls at all. To date, Richard M. Allen has not made a phone call since April 3rd, 2023. Now, it says that he was evaluated by a psychiatrist and one psychologist uh, to discuss his behavior and whether or not there was a need for involuntary medication. Uh, investigators believe that the information that Westfield Correctional Facility has gathered since Richard M. Allen was placed in that facility is important to the investigation. Investigators believe that there is video evidence that would it will that will include his admissions uh, plus his behavior prior to the admission and directly after. Investigators also believe logs kept of his daily routine are important to determine when he was in his cell and when he was removed and the reasons he was removed. So confession is big, but again, it isn't, this isn't at trial yet. So this is just two sides interpreting things in their own way to fit their own narratives. Prosecution says confession, defense says ramblings of an insane man, etc., etc. So as shocking as all this was for the internet, it's about to get completely explosive. And as far as I'm concerned, about as rough on a family as things could ever get. 
On September 18th, 2023, the defense entered a motion for a Franks hearing. Now, this is all still par for the course, really. It's just a motion to try to get the stuff from the search warrant, like the bullet thrown out. Again, it's not shocking that they would file this kind of motion, but the filing itself is the craziest thing that I've ever read and honestly so freaking disrespectful to the family and some other people that it just blows my mind. And they filed what is essentially a 139-page press release blaming, well, I'm just going to read this from the summary of the documents themselves. Overwhelming evidence in this case supports the following. Members of a pagan Norse religion called Odiism, hijacked by white nationalists, ritualistically sacrificed Abigail Williams and Liberty German. And this report alleges that, quote, very early on, those in charge of the Delphi murder investigation claimed that they consulted with a Purdue professor concerning what resembled possible odiism signatures left behind at the crime scene. After the Purdue professor proclaimed, according to the state trooper Jerry Holman, that it was not odiism or any kind of cult worshipping or any kind of group that would have conducted the crime, the odiism angle was essentially abandoned. However, as of September 7th, 2023, the leaders of the Delphi investigation team claim that they can't identify who this purported professor was, have provided no reports for this purported professor, and have further indicated that they have not been able to figure out who this professor was. Based in large part on this mystery, produced professor's opinion, the Delphi investigation leadership claimed that it essentially abandoned considering Odite involvement, Odinite involvement in the murders, and then the years passed, 2018, 2019, 2020, 21, 22. Thankfully, during those passing years, law enforcement officers Kevin Murphy, Greg Fierceney, and Todd Click continued to pursue the truth. Uh, now, note here, Todd Click disputes some of what's being said in here. And um, I think it's Kevin Murphy who's no longer alive. He passed away and on he was killed in the line of duty. Because of their curiosity and investigative efforts, the, the evidence establishing the names of the likely murdering members of this Odinite cult became known to the Delphi investigative leadership no later than February of, 2028, of 2018. Due to either incompetence or concerted intentionality, those in charge of the investigation refused to arrest or even properly investigate these obvious suspects. Odiism is the pagan religion referenced above and its followers are called Odinites. Odinites are enamored with the Viking Nordic culture. Evidence supports that the crime scene, these murdering Odinites left behind obvious signatures, symbols in the form of runes. These ruins were formed with sticks, fashioned with tree branches, and painted using the blood of Liberty German. Sticks and branches were deliberately, carefully, and proficiently placed on each girl in a certain arrangement mimicking certain ruins. At least one of the branches appeared to have its end cut off cleanly by some sort of tool like an electric saw, providing proof of a preconceived plan. Additionally, the Blood of Liberty German was used as the paint to mark a tree with a ruin that looks similar to the letter F. With a simple Google search, these ruins would be identifiable as one of many calling cards of this pagan religious cult. Yet law enforcement in charge of the Adelphi investigation seemingly and quickly abandoned the obvious correlation between the crime scene and odiism, despite an obscene amount of evidence linking odiism to the crime scene. Now, the fact that the defense is going in this direction isn't actually all that mind-blowing, but the 139 pages are. 
It is written like a seventh grade book report and naming people that have never been arrested or charged with any crime as people responsible, which I'm not going to name. Now, they lay out a lot of stuff that may or may not be good evidence for these arguments. So as a summary of their outline of the crime, they say that some of Richard's prison guards are Odinists and have basically framed him and are making him confess to the crime and that it's actually up to five different people that were directly involved, none of which were Richard. And according to this document, this ritual sacrificing group of white nationalists were upset that Anna had dated a man of another race. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of details details about their specific claims because again it hasn't gotten to trial and its opinion at this point what but what I find really gross about this is that they spell out in horrific detail what the crime scene looked like and how they have interpreted it to mean that one person couldn't possibly have done it and it's this cult and they do it using language that I find appalling using words like the scene was ghoulish and the words slow death. Repeatedly, they use those terms slow death, which is just killing the family each time the more and more they use it. Now, the first thing that a family wants to know when a family member is murdered is, did they suffer? And to read these words over and over again is just sickening to me. So I know that you guys are curious, just like I was. So I will tell you about the crime scene, but only the parts that cannot be interpreted anything other than just the facts. Libby was found nude laying at the base of a tree with branches, which the defense say in a pattern, prosecution says they were just scattered over the body and her throat was cut. Abby was a few feet away. She was dressed, but in Libby's clothes, uh, both of them were on their backs. And unlike Libby, Abby didn't have very much blood on her or her clothing, which essentially was Libby's clothing. Libby's cell phone and one of her shoes was found under Abby's body. Her throat had also been cut. And then the bullet that was found on the ground in between the two of them. Um, and then they go on to list a bunch of reasons why one person couldn't possibly have done this, which again, may or may not be true. They, I mean, they are alleging that the scene was staged and would have taken a lot of time and manual work. But one could also argue that if you interpret the scene a little bit differently, that they were actually killed quickly and a few branches were just thrown on them to try to seal the bodies. I am not going to debate the validity of any of the claims. It's just the parts that you can't really interpret any other way than that's how it was. And again, 139 pages. I can't really summarize it for you here. So if you want to read it all, it is available for you online to peruse at your leisure. Um, but we didn't even get to the Franks hearing because a friend of Andrew Baldwin, who's the defense attorney that wrote this piece of garbage motion. And again, I say it's garbage, not because it, it definitively doesn't have any evidence behind it. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not on a jury and I can't get into the heads of people. I'm just relaying what is known to be fact. It is garbage because it's not well written. It's clearly been done for a media grab and names people as suspects that could potentially ruin other people's lives and go and goes into so much detail about the crime scene and talks about it so callously that I am so turned off by these guys that I don't want to believe anything they have to say, which is actually terrible for Richard Allen, really seeing that he's innocent until proven guilty and supposed to be entitled to a fair trial and not a circus act. 
and because a lot of YouTubers and news peeps took this document and freaking ran with it, like, oh my God, they have the wrong guy. It's this complete conspiracy, who are, ironically, the very same people that only months before were nattering on about how Richard Allen was an animal and a murderer for sure, for sure, for sure, which is exactly what Baldwin and Rosie were hoping for. So anyways, this friend of Alan, Andrew Baldwin's came to visit him one day at his office. He was busy doing other stuff, so he left him in a conference room, which had all of the stuff out on the table. So this guy snaps some pictures on his phone of the crime scene and leaks them to another guy, and then another guy sends them. Well, you get the picture. Well, hopefully he didn't actually get the pictures, but you know what I mean. Well, two of the people that did get the pictures were Kevin Greenlee and Anya Kane of the Murder Sheet podcast, who have been heavily covering this case. They were appalled by it and gave the police the heads up an investigation into this horrible leak began. So on October 19th, once realizing that the prosecution was going to call witnesses, that clearly showed that the leak came from the defense, both Rosie and Baldwin quit which was actually a good move seeing that they could have been and still might be disbarred over it and that's where they leave us today alan is supposed to get a new defense team appointed to him on the 31st but it was really hard finding the first ones because nobody wants this case so now the trial is completely delayed the family has a whole lot more waiting to do they have to now avoid seeing any version of these leaked photos of their little girls and all around, this case has become a nightmare for everyone involved. It's going to be really interesting to see if the new defense team picks up where Rosie and Baldwin left off, or if they're going to go in a whole new direction. And that is my discussion of the Delphi murders to get you all up to speed in one episode. Now, if you want to delve deeper and read stuff on your own and watch legal stuff and theories, it is everywhere. I can't really point you to anywhere for good balanced coverage that isn't, as my one friend said, super long-winded. Um, I think because this case is so, so important to me personally that I'm going to try and give updates here and there for those of you that are interested. Um, I would have covered the trial as it went on with summaries, but that could be forever from now. Um, basically, I just wanted to put some perspective into this case for all of you, including myself, as a reminder that the court system has still some work to do here before we start conjecturing and naming people and putting stuff on the internet as fact when it hasn't been vetted yet. I'm going to be keeping Libby and Abby and their families in my thoughts while this debacle continues to unfold. And I hope that one day they have both justice and peace. And as always, thank you so much for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.